Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. So it's a pleasure to welcome all of you here today. I want a special thanks to the speakers that have come um, from far and wide to make this symposium an event. We came up with this idea about, uh, about nine months ago. And I can tell you that it came from really a mixture of, of new data that was emerging, the enthusiasm from complete sequencing of genomes, and the fact that it's been almost 10 years since we've had a human genome reference, the ability to start to kind of peer into the diversity that exists in different continental groups, and to understand that really from a functional perspective is why we're all gathered here today. So this symposium is organized in two parts. The first half will be really kind of exploring uh, the nature of genetic diversity in different continental groups. And we're going to hear some excellent lectures uh, focusing on Africa, South America, and Europe, and what we've learned about human genetic diversity just in terms of neutral genetic diversity and its implications. We're also going to hear from Pascal Gagnon regarding kind of the, where we fit with respect to other ape species or other species related to humans. And I think he'll leave you with the impression that we're quite shallow genetically as a species. He'll also give us a little bit of a primer in terms of, uh, so everybody's on the same page in terms of what we mean when we, when we talk about genetic variation. The second half of the symposium will focus more on really the, some of the functional implications in terms of uh, brain development, in terms of immune response. And we'll end with some um, discussion regarding the, the impact this might have in terms of society. Our next speaker is Evan Eichler from uh, University of Washington, Seattle. So thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. I would thank the organizers, but I'm one of them, so that would be inappropriate. But <laughs> So Pascal is right. I'm a repeat freak. I'm interested in regions of the genome that change very rapidly over short periods of evolutionary time. And unlike a lot of the speakers that have been focused uh, almost primarily on uh, single base pair changes and neutrally evolving sequences, what I'm going to focus on today is really different larger forms of genetic variation involving essentially gains, losses, and inversions of sequence. So shown here is a fairly uh, in a simple diagram. We have an example of some structural variation operationally defined as events greater than a KB in size. So we have pieces of DNA that sometimes become deleted. We have pieces of DNA that sometimes become duplicated on chromosomes and regions which can be, in fact, inverted or turned around with respect to another orientation. So this very busy map here represents uh, probably about three years of work in my lab just to kind of characterize the general pattern of structural variation in eight human genomes. So shown here are different human chromosomes, uh, four from African and four from non-African. The distinctions really aren't that important. But what I'm showing you here is the presence of insertions, deletions, and inversions as red, as blue, red, and green. And so each line here represents a different human genome that has been analyzed looking for structural variation events greater than 5,000 base pairs in size. So a couple of things you can maybe get from this is you can see that there's a lot of genetic variation out there uh, that is above the level of single base pair change. And most of the events that you're seeing here are essentially inherited, but we now know based on studying roughly about 2,000 human genomes that there's a, a significant fraction of very large events, often hundreds of KB in size, that are either individually specific or specific to specific families. So this is kind of changing our view of the dynamic nature of the human genome. One thing you can't get from this picture is really the locations of these. 
So most of the locations of these, of these particular sequences are embedded near or within duplicated sequences, so about 50%. The duplicated sequences of the human genome represent only about 5%, and yet we have about a tenfold enrichment of structural variation in these specific regions. Finally, these, were, these sites that we sampled and sequenced were essentially ra randomly picked. So um, compared to single nucleotide variation, you'll notice that, in fact, when we go back and we've looked at about 1,720 loci, we've actually sequenced the variation at the base pair level. We know that on the order of 1.5% of these are disease-associated or are risk for disease. Now, 1.5% might not sound like a lot, but in terms of actually other forms of genetic variation, it's a lot of bang for your buck for essentially a few loci. So we estimate now that probably on the order, if we could sample a common variation uniformly, and this is non-trivial with respect to this type of variation, that there'd be on the order of about 10,000 such events that are common and greater than 5% allele frequency in the population. The second thing I want, to, want you to get from this, and this is essentially a slide uh, that was uh, a stuff from a study that was published just last year, looking at variation in one particular form of structural variation known as segmental duplication. So these are those pieces of DNA that become duplicated. Shown in this slide is a comparison of human, chimpanzee, and orangutan, showing you the number of megabases that are either lineage-specifically duplicated, shared between a chimpanzee and human, chimpanzee-specific, or orangutan-specific or shared. So a couple things from this. One is that the total amount of real estate just for events greater than this case, greater than 20,000 base pairs, is significant. So if you compare single base pair changes between a chimp and a human, there's roughly about 35 million of them. And here we're looking just at structural variation greater than 20 kilobases in size and just duplications, and we have an equivalent amount of real estate, uh, lineage specifically deleted, or, or I should say duplicated, in either the chimpanzee or compared to the human. Second point, if you actually look at the intersection of these Venn diagrams, what you'll see is essentially a disproportion. So they are drawn to proportion, and what you see is that in the case of human and chimpanzee, there seems to be an excess of structural variation, in this case segmental duplication, in the common ancestor of human and chimp. So you can do some interesting things once you build these types of things, and I won't go through all the details on how we constructed a maximum likelihood model of this. But the bottom line is you can assign a kind of the rate of duplication activity based on sequencing extent species and doing experimental analysis. And what our data suggests at this point is that there has been an excess of duplications at a very particular time point during human evolution, not at the termini in our branch leading to our species, but in, in primarily in the common ancestor of human, chimpanzee, and gorilla. So the rate has gone up somewhere between two to four-fold, based on our estimates, at this particular time point during evolution. And in fact, this, this becomes more significant if I calibrate based on a number of substitutions as opposed to estimated uh, rates based on millions of years of evolution. So I show you this just to remind you of how much activity has gone on in the genome in very recent time. And I think, to me, what's particularly striking about this is we've had so much duplication activity in a period of time when essentially most other mutational processes are thought to have slowed down, such as a single base pair slowdown that has gone on substitution that was originally described by Wen-Sheng Li. We have indel. The rate of indels has slowed down, perhaps because of longer generation time, as well as, as other forms of genetic variation, such as retrotransposition. So this has occurred at a time, this is the only one that I know of where there's been an acceleration at a period of time that's pretty critical in terms of the evolution of our species. And a story I want to focus on today really is, um, is this one. 
a particular region of chromosome 17 where there's only three different alleles to think about. We have an area of the genome which is flanked by duplicated sequences, shown here in green. This region is about a megabase in size. There's a handful of genes in this region, labeled them here as A, B, and C. There's actually about two or three more. And the genes in, in, in most individuals in the, in the human population are organized in this orientation. We'll call this one H1 for the direct orientation. In about 20% of certain population groups, we see this orientation. So the same, what we thought was initial structure, duplicated sequences, but the genes now flipped around. So this is an inversion, one of the largest in the human population. It's about 900 kilobases in size. It's mediated by these duplicated sequences. We'll call this particular allele H2, so it's a polymorphism. The last one is this particular allele. It's where you've actually lost genes C, B, and A, or A, B, and C. And essentially, you now have, mediated once again by these duplicated sequences, a loss of about 800,000 base pairs of sequence, which occurs rarely in the human population, but it's a deletion allele. And in this region are some very interesting genes, genes associated with brain function, probably the most notable is MAPT. It's a microtubule-associated protein, tau, which is also associated with Alzheimer's disease and frontal temporal dementia. Okay, so I'm going to tell you the story of three alleles, and it's going to start with this publication back in 2005, not from our group, but from Kari Stephenson out of Decode. So Kari recognized, uh, the, there was some earlier work before this, but he really kind of did a, some, a very detailed study looking at the frequency of the inversion allele, so that flipped allele where you had your C, B, and A. And what Kari found was a couple things. One is, when you looked at the distribution of that inverted allele, indicated here in black, you found that there was a very high population stratification of it. So it was located, or it was about somewhere between 20 to 30 percent allele frequency only in populations of either European or Mediterranean descent. So you'll see here, for example, the Icelandic population is about 25 percent, and here in the Druze it's about 35 percent. Once you get outside of, of Europe and the Middle East, it essentially is almost non-existent. So you can see in the Asians, it, it doesn't exist. Very low frequencies in Africa and low frequency in Amerindian populations. The second thing from this study, which was, is actually to this day is still very controversial, was the finding that uh, Stephenson had access to about 20,000 transmissions, both H1 and H2. And what he found in his study of the Icelandic population is individuals carrying the H2 tended to have more children. It increased fecundity on the order of about 3.5%. So again, that might not sound uh, like a lot, but when you have essentially 20,000 transmissions you're studying, you get pretty significant p-values. The other interesting observation that he made was essentially increased global recombination in these particular individuals. So they tend to have more cryogenic crossovers, and we don't know why any of this is happening. It's just an association with this particular inverted allele. So he came to the conclusion that this inversion was under strong positive selection in the Europeans for some reason which we don't understand, but associated with increased fecundity and uh, increased global recombination. So that just basically summarizes this. Um, so 20% allele frequency within Europe. Most humans don't have the inverted allele. 
carriers of the inversion show increased fecundity and increased global recombination, and that's based on a very large study from Iceland. And one other point, this is taken from John Hardy's paper recently on, or about two years ago, on, on cortex expression. Individuals carrying the H2 haplotype, when they look at their brains, actually have lower expressions of all four or five genes in that critical region, and it's a significant reproducible association. So it turns out that certain individuals with the H1 haplotype, which has higher levels of expression, tend to be at risk for Alzheimer's disease, an old known association for several years. All right, so we got into this particular locus quite by accident because we were studying regions of the genome that were very unstable, particularly regions that were flanked by segmental duplications, and so we had about 130 such regions. And we were actually testing a very simple hypothesis. Did we see spontaneous deletions or duplications of these regions associated with intellectual disability, autism, and now later schizophrenia in the general population? So I'll just cut to the chase. So this is one of our first hits back in 2006. So once again, we're looking at this same region. These are these large blocks of duplication. We're looking here at uh, four individuals from a population of about 300 children with mental retardation or intellectual disability. And what we found was that in four of these 291 patients, we had this large deletion corresponding exactly to the same area that was inverted in the European population. And in fact, this is actually indicated here by these little bars. You can actually see the below the line indicating that these kids are actually hemizygous. That is to say, they have, half, they have one full complement from one chromosome, but they're missing from another. We tested all the parents that we get our hands on. And in all cases, this was a de novo event. That's to say, mom and dad were diploid, so there's no variation here. But essentially, the child was deleted. So this was actually reproduced in two other studies at the same time, published back to back to back. We had about 20 kids all combined, all showing the same thing. High frequency of de novo mutations explains somewhere between half to about 1% of mental retardation in the population. So the deletion is, is bad. So here's what the kids look like. It turns out it's a syndromic uh, disease. You can actually, these are all unrelated children, and you can just look at them, and you, you don't have to be a clinician to appreciate that there's, in fact, striking similarities. So bulbous nose, pronounced philtrum, protruding tongue. And, in fact, one of the behavioral aspects of this particular syndrome is that the children are extremely happy. So unlike some other uh, deletion syndromes and other syndromes in the population, these kids tend to, tend to be happier than uh, their siblings, so they have a very positive outlook on life. But this is essentially their configuration. They have essentially this region, and they have this deletion. All right, so the obvious question is, what is the relationship between this inversion and this deletion, or is there one? So we basically went to test that. So we tested 17 parents of children in, in which microdeletion had occurred in their germline. And we had found in 17 out of 17 cases that the deletion occurred in the parent and on the chromosome that was the inverted haplotype, i.e. H2. Okay, so the H2, the one associated with supposedly increased fecundity, is also associated here. You don't need statistics here. This is at 20% allele frequency. This is highly, highly significant. But the data suggests that the inversion itself or something like that haplotype is predisposing to microdeletions associated with intellectual disability. There's kind of a corollary to this. Because this is found almost exclusively in Europeans and Mediterranean populations, the prediction would be that essentially this would be a form of mental retardation or intellectual disability that would be largely restricted to European populations because you've got to have the H2 to, in fact, have the deletion. And so while this is not a proof, this number is actually up to about 1,100 now that we've tested of African-American descent. Children with intellectual disability, we have not found a single occurrence of the deletion while we would expect it already to find probably on somewhere between 8 to 10 in a study of this size if they were European. So the question is why? 
Why are humans that carry this 17Q21 inverted haplotype predisposed to microdeletion? So there's two possibilities. Either the inversion itself, somehow, and there was a lot of people that were thinking about different models, or there's something else on that haplotype that has evolved that predisposes to the event. So our approach was a fairly straightforward one. Let's just sequence it. Let's sequence both the H1 and H, H2 haplotypes in all of their glory. And this is not a simple task, as many of you may be familiar with. When you have regions that are highly duplicated and complex, like this region of the genome, you have to be very careful in terms of how you do the sequence and assembly. You're not going to get it, for example, from an Illumina sequence analyzer. So this is what we did. We worked with two groups, um, one at Broad and one at, at, at uh, WashU. And we sequenced the H1. Remember the, one, the direct orientation that most humans have? And this is the European-slash-Mediterranean allele. And what I'm showing you here is not the genes anymore, but I'm just showing you the duplication architecture for these two. So here's the H1. All these colored boxes represent different duplications that we've classified. The history is not really that important yet. And this represents the H2. And when I'm showing you blue lines, that means that there are actually duplications on either side of the critical region that's deleted, but that are in an inverted orientation with respect to one another. Okay? So this is a directly oriented haplotype, but it's got duplications that are invertedly oriented. When you see green lines, that means that these are actually directly orientated duplications. And if you remember your old unequal crossing over rules, you know that you have to have direct repeats in order to drive a recombination or unequal crossing over event. So the thing that strikes you immediately looking at the H2 haplotype, the European Mediterranean one, is essentially they're larger, more complex, but the most important thing is that essentially it is the only haplotype with directly orientated duplications. A 70 KB duplication in the European chromosomes that is in direct orientation. So kind of to kind of prove this point, we went back to our patients and looked, and lo and behold, the breakpoints in these patients were occurring in this duplication, which is actually a single copy in the H1 haplotype. So in principle, the mystery is solved. We think the reason H2 is actually predisposing to microdeletions is because of the new duplication architecture that has evolved on it. But as we, in the course, have actually sequenced the entire region, we can do some other cool things. So we can actually look at the diversity in the unique portions of this particular region of the genome. So this is actually an alignment of 219 kilobases of sequence across this region. And what we're doing is we're, we're comparing it to the chimp. So this is the level of sequence divergence between H1 to chimp and H2 to chimp. And you can see it's more or less the same. But here's the unusual part, something that was recognized early by Stephenson. The amount of divergence between the H1 and H2 is about fourfold higher than what you'd expect from most regions of the genome. So you see a change probably once every couple hundred base pairs, a single base pair change, where you should expect between any two humans, one every roughly thousand base pairs of change. So a lot of genetic divergence between the H1 and H2, or diversity between the H1 and H2, since their separation. So you can do some, I should point out there's an unusual region right here which suggests that there's been some exchange between H1 and H2 over the cortical releasing hormone receptor. But overall, these two molecules or two chromosomes don't touch each other largely because of the fact you can't have recombination successfully and have offspring in an inverted portion of the genome. But you can estimate the evolutionary age. So this is actually a, a, a tree generated from sequencing both the human haplotypes as well as chimpanzee and orangutan. And the estimated evolutionary age for the separation of these two pieces of DNA is 2.3 million years ago. So about the time of Homo habilis. Okay. 
So the other thing that's pretty interesting, so this is way too diverse for what you'd expect based on normal areas of the genome. But you can also ask the question, is the H1 or is the H2 more closely, in terms of the polymorphisms, more similar to the chimp in terms of derived versus ancestral? And what you find, lo and behold, to our kind of amazement, is that the H2 looks like it represents the ancestral state, at least in terms of looking at the various polymorphisms. So here you're looking at an allele, which is essentially almost non-existent in all populations of the Earth, except for Europeans, where it represents 20 to 30 percent of that frequency, yet it's the ancestral state. So we went and did some more analysis. We looked at the duplication architecture in other primates to see, because the duplication is pretty important for generating the inversions and the deletions. And what we find, so shown here in red is the duplication architecture. So whenever you see red, that means that we've detected duplication. So here's human, very complex duplication architecture, hundreds of kilobases in size. Here's chimpanzee, it's getting smaller. Orangutan and macaque, very small. So the data suggests that this thing has increased in complexity over the last few million years of evolution significantly, um, specifically in the human and chimpanzee lineage. So the last thing we asked the question was essentially, what is the inversion status if we go to other chimps and other, other non-human primates? So shown here is actually a fish assay. So these are chromosomes from chimps, Clint, Katie, and Logan. We developed a simple assay to test for the presence of directly orientated, i.e. the H1 haplotype, versus the inverted orientation, i.e. this is like the H2 European-like haplotype. And what you see is that you can actually find, to our surprise once again, chimps that look more European in terms of their inversion status. And in fact, if you actually do large numbers of chimps, you'll find homozygotes of both type, and you have an inversion, 17Q21, of roughly 55% allele frequency in that particular population. Repeat the experiment in orangutan. Orangutans, almost all the orangutans we looked at are homozygously inverted, i.e. H2-like. We have one, this is a Bornean, who is essentially uh, heterozygous. And we've got them three different subspecies of macaque. They all have the inverted or organization. So, last point, we recently had the opportunity to look at this uh, sand bushman. Uh, Sarah talked about this. We actually looked at the duplication architecture with Stefan Schuster, who sequenced the first, I think, complete, roughly complete uh, version of a, of a bushman genome. And there were four bushmen that were sequenced. And once again, perhaps not to our surprise now, because we think the H2 might be ancestral. Remember, the Bushmen represent an early branch in terms of human evolution. We found one of the four Bushmen actually had the H2 haplotype, which we saw in Europe. But the interesting and surprising thing is while every last H2 that we've ever looked at, the inverted version in the Europeans, has the actual duplication, that 70 KB duplication, which is the cause of all the problems, this Bushman does not have that 70 kilobase duplication. So the European structure looks like this. Sand structure looks like that. So in summary, we have a model something like this. We think that the, this part of the human genome, this is, remember, just one part of the human genome, started out as an inverted orientation. And duplication started to accumulate 7 to 8 million years ago, specifically in the ancestral lineage of human and chimpanzee. 2.3 million years ago, we estimate that essentially the H1 and H2 split from one another. And that at this point, while H2 was predominant coming in, H1, either because of drift or because of perhaps selective advantage, swept through most human populations or founding populations. 
Subsequently, we had additional duplications, pretty important event that occurred on this lineage leading toward Europeans. We estimate a million years ago, which is actually quite old, considering essentially the fact that we don't see it in the Bushmen. And finally, we have this expansion of, of, out of Africa 40 to 50,000 years ago, which now essentially that duplication is present on, on, on about 30 to 40 percent of European Middle Eastern chromosomes. And just to confuse matters, that signal that we're seeing in the other uh, great apes turns out to be a recurrent event. So the, we've actually did some sequencing on the different uh, orangutans and uh, chimpanzees, and we can show that essentially they have a very young age. So this piece of DNA has been toggling for a long period of time, we think, back and forth. So in summary, I've told you a story which I think is probably one of the most remarkable regions of the human genome in terms of its complexity, of a 2.3 million year old allele. This is not uh, really your average aged allele. This is an old timer in terms of all human alleles. Uh, with a complex evolutionary history where duplications predisposed to an inversion, which, ed, which led to essentially a direct orientations of duplications then subsequently emerging on the inversion, probably because there was no recombination, which then subsequently predisposed to deletion. The inverted H2 haplotype likely represents the ancestral state of humans, and there are three different lines of evidence of which I think support that. H1 and H2 are currently very stratified in the human population, so much more than we'd expect based on kind of neutrality. If you believe the data from um, Kari Stephenson, in addition to being uh, essentially a, a risk factor for predisposing to microdeletions associated with intellectual disability, this same allele is associated with increased fecundity in northern, northern populations of Europe. So I like this story because I think it kind of illustrates the complexity of our genome, how much we have yet to learn, and the fact that disease and evolution are really just two sides of really the same process in terms of thinking about our species. And these are the people that did all the work. Zoshi Jang, Jeff Kidd, both former students, a postdoc, Francesca Scantonacci, who did all the fish work, great collaborators um, in terms of the sequencing, John Hardy, Nye Megan in terms of the clinical work, and then uh, the recent analysis of the sand Bushman. Thanks. My name is Ajit Varki, and as the co-director of UCSD Salk Carter, it's my great pleasure to make a few closing remarks to this wonderful symposium. I would obviously like to thank the chairs and all the speakers from a, for a truly intriguing and thought-provoking series of presentations. And, of course, special thanks to our major sponsors, the Harold and... Lila Mathers Charitable Foundation and Jim Handelman, the Executive Director, and Annette Merle-Smith. This afternoon, we have been treated to a fascinating feast of current information on the origin of the human species and our remarkable biodiversity. So it's said that truth is stranger than fiction. Who would have thought that all of us in this room, and in fact all of us on this planet, came from less than five or 10,000 individuals less than 100,000 years ago? So even while we celebrate the rich diversity of humans, I think we should, with Swante Pabo, realize that from the genomic perspective, we are all Africans, either living in Africa or in quite recent exile from Africa. <laughs> so in this regard, I cannot help but close with mention something that I came across last week, and that was a reminder about the upcoming U.S. Census. <laughs> Question number nine on the census form asked me to classify myself into this bewildering set of races. And uh, although I'm technically an Asian Indian, as you just heard from uh, Mike, um, 
that's really not a very good category. In fact, the part of India that I'm from has not even been tested. So um, my own ancestry probably involves ancient Dravidians, Indo-European invaders, immigrants from Syria, Chinese sailors, Arab traders, and who knows who else. So I feel that I must instead check the box uh, other. But then I have to make two choices. My first choice is my true ethnic identity, which is culturally westernized, anglicized, naturalized U.S. immigrant, Syrian Christian Malayali from Kerala and the south coast of West India. So I thought about this, and I think what I'm going to do instead, and I would encourage you to tell everyone to do this, let's, let's make, a, make a change here and just say human. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.